and welcome to the Cutting Edge Podcast, all things health and wellness, COVID-19 and beyond, where we transport you into the sacred space of black barbershops and salons for Truth Talk with servant leaders who love our people. Welcome to another edition of the Cutting Edge as a podcast. My name is Dr. Stephen B. Thomas. I'm a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the University of Maryland School of Public Health in College Park. And I'm so excited to be here with you for another edition of the Cutting Edge Podcast, where we address all issues on health and wellness, COVID and beyond. You know, we've had one amazing 2022 um, in this new normal of the pandemic. That's right. The pandemic is still here. The COVID pandemic has not gone away, but we're being told that this is the new normal. Come out of your, uh, come, come out of your bubbles. Uh, and for the most part, we're on our own. And so it's up to us to uh, know how to do the COVID calculus. When do I put on a mask? You know, when do I stay home from a family gathering? Who do I let in my house? All these are factors we now have to think about on a routine basis. Is COVID going to be like the flu and I got to get a COVID booster every year? Maybe more than one a year? These are unknowns. We are in uncharted territory, my friends. That's why I'm so happy to be here with you today on this new platform of bringing information to our community. Uh, We believe that at the end of the day, if you give people the information they need and the knowledge to take action, they will naturally gravitate towards saving their own lives. And that's the message that we've been putting out since the beginning of the pandemic, almost three years, we've been on the front line of this battle. And here we are at the closeout of 2022, and I'm reflecting back on some highlights. And that's what this edition of The Cutting Edge is going to be about, our invitation to the White House. That's right, the White House Summit on COVID-19, COVID and equity. That was hosted at the White House on Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. It's said from 2 to 3 o'clock, but we stayed there as long as we wanted to. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I, I, I remember being on the subway heading downtown D.C. Uh, in order to get into the White House, you had to make a stop along the way uh, and get COVID tested. Can you believe that? They had a whole elaborate system. Uh, so I got my test. Uh, then I went to the security gate. And I'm meeting all these people from around the country that have been flown in uh, for this summit. And it was just so exciting. There were some people in that line that act like they were always in the White House line. You know what I mean? But I'm there all excited because I'm there representing the barbers and stylists of hair. That's right. Health advocates in reach and research. And the wellness warriors that we have across the country who've been involved in our campaign supported by the White House called Shots at the Shop an amazing effort to recruit 1,000 barbershops and beauty salons all across the United States to transform their shops into COVID vaccine clinics. And it worked. It is amazing. And as a result of our efforts, we get an invitation to the White House where they were highlighting promising programs from across the country. 
in terms of what works. And so we're going to take a moment today and I'm going to take you into that White House briefing room so that you can hear from some of our friends. And I do believe they are our friends committed to health equity, committed to the elimination of racial and ethnic health disparities. And they have, they, they know we are making a difference. We brought the barbershops and beauty salons and put it on the map. And so um, what I'd like to do is take you into the briefing room and for you to hear some of the opening remarks of the people that are laying the federal policy for how we're going to solve this problem of COVID, but also address the underlying conditions. You remember those? The diabetes, the heart disease, all the things killing black people before their time. We want more than the jab. You can't give us a jab and leave us with cancer. You can't give us a jab and leave us with diabetes. That was the message to the White House, and they listened. You know, one of the young um, uh, physicians in charge of the White House Equity Initiative is Dr. Cameron Webb. He's a senior advisor for the White House COVID-19 response team. African-American brother, down to earth. I want you to hear from him and how he set the stage. Let's roll the tape on Dr. Webb. Well, hello and good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's great to be here with you. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming. My name is Cameron Webb, and I am a senior advisor here to the White House COVID-19 response. And it's really my pleasure to welcome you here for the White House Summit on COVID-19 equity. Now, equity, when it comes to COVID-19, we're talking about that idea that all individuals and all communities have access to the resources and tools that they need to not just survive but thrive despite this pandemic. It means that we're acknowledging the historical and contemporary dynamics that drive inequities in health and that we're working as part of a whole of society effort to achieve and actively design policies and interventions that can overcome those factors in the midst of this pandemic. Today's event is designed to create space and share some of those promising and best practices, hearing directly from some of the organizations and groups who've been on the front lines and found the most success in driving equity. It's meant to center people in community, from community, who've been the real driving engine behind the progress that we've made toward equity. I want to welcome the thousands of individuals who are joining us, uh, who've registered via the live stream who are here with us today, as it's critical for us to make the information we're providing today accessible to folks all over the country. We're excited to have you here today. And additionally, the in-person aspects of today's event are taking place here at the Eisenhower Executive Office Building on the White House campus, which it's important to note is positioned in the ancestral homeland of the Nakachtank and Piscataway Kanoi people. So as we begin, we'd like to pay our respect to elders, both past and present. You know, Dr. Webb, young brother, practicing physician, here he is running a White House COVID-19 response team, and he's seeing patients. Uh, living in Virginia, and over the course of our of our trainings, we were doing uh, weekly Zoom town halls, and I got to know him very well. And I'm realizing for this young brother to be an advisor, senior advisor at the White House, boy, that comes with a whole lot of well swag, leadership, ego. But you know what? He didn't come that way. He came like a shepherd. He listened to us. And because he came like a shepherd, wanting to learn from us, 
the barbers and the stylists had the freedom to be creative. And that's why it worked. So what is equity? It's about fairness. After Dr. Webb spoke, next to the microphone was the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, Dr. Hashish Jha. Now notice here, I got an African-American brother opening up. <laughs> I got a South Asian brother coming in next. All people of color, all right? The White House COVID-19 response coordinator is the person you see on the nightly TV news giving the White House briefing on COVID. Warm, down-to-earth brother. I want you to hear directly from Dr. Hashish Jha. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, from the first day that President Biden took office, he made a commitment to equity in the COVID-19 response a centerpiece. First, we saw the rollout of the COVID-19 national strategy with equity as one of its key priorities. Then on his first full day in office, he established the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force with Dr. Nunez Smith as the chair. And since that time, this administration's standard has been, and by the way, this shows up every day in all of our conversations, that for every policy decision, at every moment when we are trying to decide, do we go this way or do we go that way, we need to think about how do we make sure all communities have the opportunity to benefit from the policies that we are engaging in. Now, the notion of equity for this president hasn't just been words on paper on an executive order. I interviewed for the job I'm in back in early March. And in that interview, the president made very clear to me that were I to get this job, that he needed to hear from me that all Americans were going to benefit from the work that we were going to do as a COVID team. That equity could not be an afterthought. It had to be an organizing principle. Well, I, I, I sure hope his warmth came through. He said he's kind of like a, you know, a great uncle you have. They actually picked him uh, in some ways because they believed he was a much better communicator at this phase in the pandemic. Former dean of a school of public health, uh, he knows how to reach people. I found him very genuine and I think we can have a lot of confidence that he is speaking the truth and that these principles of equity are not just window dressing. They need to hear from us when they do the right thing. And even when it comes to the Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, another South Asian, another brown brother, <laughs> he's the U.S. Surgeon General. Can you believe that? <laughs> And, and you know, he came to the microphone and told his own personal story growing up in India, a country that has a caste system. You know, it's their equivalent to slavery in this country. It's their equivalent to discrimination and Jim Crow. And many of the people who are in that caste in India are dark-skinned. I found some South Asian brothers and sisters darker than me. <laughs> At 50 paces, they look like a black person. And I think increasingly they recognize that, that they have more in common with people of color here in the U.S. than they may have imagined. And many of them are U.S. citizens. And that is the other challenge with 
particularly our Asian brothers and sisters who feel as if they're always seen as immigrants. And they may have been here for decades, centuries, who knows? So uh, the Surgeon General, I think, really laid it out for us and why it's so important, so important to recognize the legacy that we have, what our ancestors taught us. This is no time to forget it. This is a time to put it in action. Take a listen to the Surgeon General. I was talking to my father yesterday night, and he's, uh, he's visiting India, which is where my family is originally from. And, uh, you know, my father was very close to his dad, and uh, we were talking a little bit about my grandfather's legacy. And, you know, for me, my grandfather's legacy is very much tied to why I'm here today, because my grandfather was my original and first teacher on equity when I was a small child. And he didn't use the word equity to teach me about equity. Uh, but he used his own experience. You see, my, my grandfather grew up in a small village in India. And, you know, were, India has a caste system. Uh, and the caste system, in many ways, is the analog of race here uh, in the United States. And suffice it to say that we did not come from the right caste, you know. And so, uh, you know, there were folks who, you know, may have looked down on us or may have looked at us differently uh, just because of, you know, the nature of our birth. But it turns out that my grandfather, despite all of that, he knew that we weren't the only family that perhaps uh, you know, was looked at unfavorably because of our caste, but that there are others that were worse off, uh, who were not given opportunities for education, who were not given economic opportunities just because of the families that they were born into, not because of any fault of their own. And what he made it a point to do every year is even though our family in that small farming village in India did not have much money, even though uh, he didn't have money to pay for shoes and slippers for his own children, even though his kids had to dilute their grain bowls with more and more water each night to make sure that there was enough food around the table, even though that was the kind of bracing poverty that he was living in, he still made it a point to take a few weeks every year to travel around the villages to raise money so that a youth hostel could be built for students to study. And people would often say to him, you know, why, why are you doing this? Your own kids don't have enough to eat. Why did you take care of your own kids? Why are you worried about those kids? And having experienced what it's like to not be given opportunity, to not be given an education just because of the family you were born into, he said, no, those kids are our kids too. And in that simple way, with that simple message, he became my first teacher about the importance of equity, about closing gaps so that we can all prosper so that we all have opportunities, so that every child can grow up knowing that they have inherent dignity and value, and they don't have to think less of themselves because of the color of their skin, because of their background, because of the family that they were born into. That's why what we're doing today is so important. You know, equity is not just part of a mission statement. This is a value that many of us hold dear. This is a principle that we want to live our lives by and that we want society uh, to, to live by as well. You know, the table was set, and the very first panel was about trust. In fact, it was titled, It All Starts With Trust. It all starts with trust. And I believe that, because for, for many people in our community, they have a legitimate distrust of the government a legitimate distrust of the healthcare delivery system, 
in fact, racism and discrimination in medicine and public health would be easy to ignore if it wasn't so well documented. And what I was so impressed with was that they recognized that history at this White House summit. And so now comes the moderator for the first panel. Her name is Dr. Stephanie Friedhoff. She's a senior policy advisor for the White House COVID-19 response team. I did several um, conference calls with her prior to the event. In fact, she did interviews with each of the panelists individually, and I think that really helped her set the table in a, in a, in a situation where we, where we had limited time trying to get all the right information out. So let's take a moment and listen to the setup for the first panel. Dr. Stephanie Friedhoff. Thank you so much. If I could ask our panelists for the first panel to come up, Gloria, Fernando, Abigail, and Stephen, that would be terrific. Um, it's fantastic to see you all here. Welcome again. I'm Stephanie Friedhoff. I'm a senior policy advisor here on the team. I'm on detail from Brown University, where we run something called the Information Futures Lab and um, think a lot about how we build trust, uh, both in the aftermath of this pandemic and in the larger infodemic um, that we have faced. So I'm so excited to be here with these four passionate, inspiring um, leaders to talk about the role of trust in equity work. We all know that study after study has shown that trust is a central tenant of resilience in a pandemic and key to achieving equity. Trust in government, trust in institutions, trust in our leaders, trust in expertise, trust in each other. It all matters, and it matters even more so in a crisis. But trust is also easily lost, especially when uncertainty is high and when misinformation is rampant and bad actors are using the moment to manipulate people in their favor. We've heard a little bit about that already today. Trust is easily lost in a crisis when the inequities that are inherent in our system start creating disproportionate outcomes for the most vulnerable. That's true for a lot of things. It's also true for the information inequities that we see in society today. Building trust, on the other hand, is really hard work. Speeches and messages matter, but trustworthiness and actions matter even more. It's the kind of work that our panelists here do every day. So I was, I was nervous, okay? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm up there with all of these uh, stars from around the country, Abigail Ecohawk, uh, Gloria Montel, uh, Fernando Garcia, and yeah, little old me, uh, and the barbers and the stylists. And so uh, then Stephanie throws me a question for my opening remarks. Oh, I was so nervous. Okay, you guys decide. Let's roll the tape. Well, uh, first of all, let me just say, I feel like I'm in the room where it happens. <laughs> this is so exciting. I'm flying my state flag. We made history in the state of Maryland. Come on, give it up for Maryland. Come on. <laughs> first African-American governor, first South Asian lieutenant governor. Maryland is showing the way forward. And so trust is a calculated risk. And I'd be in trouble if I didn't bring the message from the barbershops right into this room. 
So uh, for Hashish Ja, the barbers want you to know that no self-respecting black barber would ever say he'll get you out in 10 minutes. And it doesn't matter how much hair you have, you're gonna be in the chair for hours. Hashish is still combing. I'm combing my face, but I'm still there half a day. So why not go where people already have trust? And that's the pivot we made in going into the barbershops early on around chronic disease before the pandemic, I couldn't get my clinical partners to answer the phone. Pandemic hits, hyper-local, they responded. And we began to put needles in arms in barbershops and salons. And we end up in the Washington Post and I get a phone call from Cameron Webb. He says, can you scale this? And the next thing you know, it's shots at the shop. Over a thousand barbershops and salons across the country enrolled in our rapid response training. There's a silver lining of the pandemic. And they began working with NACHO, National Association of County and City Health Officials. APHA just gave them an award. And we connected our barbershops to a clinical partner. And they've been putting needles in arms. Hyperlocal works. Uh, this is our I just declassified this top secret document here. This is the playbook, Strengthening Health Promotion Through Sustained Hyperlocal Engagement, our Communivax report, and um, it gives you step-by-step step how we did what we did. Now to answer your question, the barbers and stylists have gone through training. They are new helpers on the front line. And they've told me to bring this message back to this room. Nobody wants to go back to normal. Because for far too many black and brown people, back to normal means living sicker and dying younger. And at the time when we have bent the curve to close the gap, the very things that worked are being dismantled. That's why I'm here right now to tell you, don't abandon the front line. And who would know that you'd have barbers and stylists as new partners? In Maryland, they've been trained as certified community health workers. And we want to build that infrastructure for more hyper-local approaches. They came to me and said, hey, Dr. T, that's the nickname they gave me. When you get a nickname, you know you're in, right? <laughs> People are coming into the barbershop saying, when can they get their booster? We don't want to send them to down the street. Trust matters. And the misinformation that was marinating in our community is still out there. They're not in retreat. And they're using the legacy of the US Public Service syphilis study done at Tuskegee as an example or reason why black people are hesitant. And I'm here to tell you that is a lie. Because the people in Tuskegee, the granddaughters and grandsons of the men who suffered, they have made it clear that the suffering of their loved ones was because during that time, that 40 years, those men were not treated. And the government institutions were used to keep them from being treated. So what's the lesson today? To do everything possible to ensure that those communities are prioritized, that we do whatever is necessary to get them the care they need where they are. And so uh, I'll just say this, when you come to our vaccine clinics in the barbershop, it's not like going to a hospital. It's like coming to a party. <laughs> it's like a family reunion. 
people came hesitant and they left hesitant but vaccinated. <laughs> we didn't have to change their worldview. We had DJs, music spinning, and that is how you treat people with dignity and respect, give them the information they need and the wisdom to take action, and they will naturally gravitate towards saving their own lives. That's where they are right now. They call themselves wellness warriors. <laughs> Don't abandon them. We're here to make a difference in changing that broken sickness care system in this country. And our barbershops and salons can be trusted information centers where we can ensure that the next pandemic surge does not close our country down. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you know, I did have butterflies, but once it started, I had to represent. And I have to tell you, uh, yeah, uh, the barber said, the barbers and stylists said to me, hey, Dr. T, did you wear your hat? I said, you know, I had to represent because uh, I have to tell the story of what it means that it doesn't matter how much hair you have. When I take the hat off, they all get it. Did you hear them laughing out there? And that's when I knew I had them. I had them in the barbershop. I had them in the right mindset. And that really helped, I think, open up the conversation. And I, I, I want to tell you, all of the speakers were amazing. But we have a limited time here uh, today, and so I'm going to share some of the highlights. I've been in Zoom calls for months during this pandemic, and a lot of these people I had met only in the Hollywood squares of Zoom, and now I'm meeting them in person. So it was so exciting to meet Dr. Abigail Eco-Hawk. This sister is bad. She is dragon, breathing dragon fire. Abigail Eco-Hawk is the director of Urban Health Institute and Education and the executive vice president at the Seattle Indian Health Board. I am telling you, well, let me let her tell you. Let's roll the tape. Uh, I think before I start, a, a mentor of mine has always said, in order to reach equity, you have to walk through truth. So I'd like to tell you some truth today. Um, in early 2020, my organization, Seattle Indian Health Board, as an Indian health care provider and an FQHC in Seattle, Washington, uh, we were the epicenter of Seattle in 2020. Um, and, and in March, my clinic was, we were overrun. We had so many people coming in and out. We had no PPE. We had docs who were sewing their own masks. We had, we were, we had no gowns. They were switching scrubs in between every patient. Um, they were doing whatever it took. And we reached out to our local partners, to our federal partners for PPE. We receive a box um, about a week later, and my CEO and I, we opened that box, and instead of finding PPE, what we found was a box of body bags. We had been sent a box of body bags while my docs were sewing their own mask. Now, while this was a literal thing in front of my face, and I remember leaving the clinic that day and crying all the way home. And then the next day, we got to work because while it was a literal and an actual metaphor for the treatment of American Indians and Alaska Natives in this country, the chronic underfunding of the Indian healthcare system, the ongoing colonial oppression that is suppressing our economic vitality, the increase of risk factors that created the situation where across the country American Indian and Alaska Native communities were experiencing the highest rates of morbidity and mortality. I was watching my people die around me. And what I saw, however, in the midst of all of that grief, 
of sparks of hope that came from the strengths of our community. And in fact, where my organization got PPE from was from of our local organizations who somehow got us 10,000 surgical masks from their manufacturer in China. They manufacture blankets, and they got us it first. And so our people were experiencing that level of mistrust because that wasn't the first box of body bags. That wasn't the first time we have been failed by the federal government, by the state government, by the county governments. And yet, we continued. And what it was and how we have some of the highest rates of vaccinations of racial and ethnic groups, how we have combated and ensured that our elders not only survived through the pandemic, but they thrived, was the trust that was held within trusted indigenous organizations, such as the National Indian Health Board, who worked at the national level to work with the tribal communities, both urban and rural. We saw regional organizations who then got information and spread that out in a culturally appropriate and culturally shaped way. Not anybody else's messages, our messages for us, by us, on the importance of quarantining, of face masks, and then of vaccinations. What we found when vaccinations were coming and we knew it was happening, there were surveys being done across the country about uh, you know, how we are going to get people vaccinated, and there was no significant samples of what that looked like for the Native community. So a staff member and I worked all night, because I'm doing this whole clinic thing during the day, and we launched what was still the only national survey on beliefs and hesitations of the vaccine by American Indian Alaska Native communities. And what we found was completely different. Native people were willing to get vaccinated because they would do it for their community. Not individual messaging, community messaging, as innate public health communities. And what we found in some states, I would say not all. In some counties, not all. We found that our tribal, our partners were willing to work with the tribal communities and give us the resources to shape what we needed to do for our people, by our people. Now, there's still work to be done. There is still incredible mistrust and ongoing structural racism that continues to inhibit our ability to serve our people well. We still have a chronic underfunding of the Indian Health Service. We still need to make sure that policies from the federal to the local level incorporate the needs of indigenous communities. But what we have seen is that building of trust and those trusted partners, not in a one-time thing, not in the two times. Y'all need to be there all of the time. Not there to try to lead us, but to recognize we have the strengths, the resources, and the assets to do what is right for our people and, again, by our people. We, as indigenous people, we are not a problem to solve, and yet Western-based equity often sees us as that, when, in fact, we are all of the answers. We are not a historically underserved community. We are colonially oppressed. We are institutionally underserved, but we are historically resilient, and our ability to have trust within our communities was evident during the pandemic. And while we had too many deaths and I lost too many of my elders, we know that the lessons that we have learned and the ones that we have shared with our partners are what are going to allow us to not only address COVID-19, but address chronic disease, and to look at the built health disparities that exist within our communities and break down that structural racism and achieve true equity. We are all of the answers. Dr. Abigail Echohawk. I just look this listen to her name. Who's gonna mess with Abigail Echohawk? She said, I'm gonna start with some truth. And she brought it. And you realize that for all the panelists, the one thing they had in common was their hyper local approach. They knew their community. 
how can you set the age category in Washington, D.C. at 60, 65, whatever the number is, and we know our people are dying at 50? You got to listen to us. We're on the front lines. We're gathering the intelligence. And that was from my Native American sister. But the same thing is true for African-Americans, Latinos, those of us on the front line. All these panelists are the intelligence officers for their community. I'm going to be quiet for just a little bit and let you see how this panel just took off. Let's roll the tape. We're trying to make up a little bit on time, but I would like to get to one or two questions. And while you think about your questions and we have runner mics, um, I'm a reporter by background, so I'm just going to uh, do a little bit of that style. If you all could, you know, in, in two or three sentences, um, give us an answer to the question of what do you want people in government to know about trust and what we need to do going forward? And I'm going to start with Stephen. You know, uh, when I received that phone call from Dr. Cameron Webb with all the imprimatur that comes being at the White House, with all the ego boost that that might bring, you know, he didn't come to lead. He came like a shepherd. And that allowed us to have the flexibility and the freedom to mount our campaign where we let the barbers and stylists, they let us. And that's why we still have the trust with them today. And now it's all about trustworthiness. They're expecting that we got some real good troublemakers up here. When we go back to where we have come from, we got to deliver to say they're not going to leave us on the front lines with no resources. So right now, um, I think we have to uh, listen and give them the information in a format that they can absorb and keep the conversation going. And the way we've done that is we've brought in the arts and humanities. So I want my STEM scientists here to know the arts have a role to play in this phase we're in right now. And so we're turning uh, all of these scientific reports into graphic novels in the form of a comic book. It's called The Barbershop Storybook. And uh, we'll launch a podcast. So we're using the silver lining of the pandemic I'm meeting Abigail again, not in the Hollywood Squares, but here in person. And a lot of the people in the audience have been in our Hollywood Square Zooms. Uh, we can use that technology to keep the conversation going. And I think that's what uh, the community is expecting, um, that the pandemic is not over, especially in our communities. And now they want to address the other chronic diseases that make them so vulnerable. We have to be there for them as well. Thank you, Stephen. Gloria, what do you want people in government to know about yeah. taking it forward? That when we talk about equity, it's really prioritizing those that have been historically oppressed um, and disinvested. Um, and the way that we do that is investing in the community leadership, in community skill building, and community assets moving forward. Um, and that it's not only about COVID-19, but it's really addressing those systems that are designed to keep people in these inequities as well. And, and that's a long game as well. That, that um, the other piece, I guess, that there is no short-term solution, that this requires partnership with community, allowing community to lead, and the end game is long. Thank you. Um, Fernando, how about you? Yes, two things I would like to mention. The first one is that all of the work that we've done uh, at the border in, 
in, in our, especially in El Paso and in the border region, is being done by volunteers in our community. And many of them didn't get a penny out of any resources being provided by the government. So they did it because of their families, because the, 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 the problem was with their families and they were part of the solution. So I think it is important to keep that in mind, the solution many times, they come from communities, not necessarily from, from uh, the top of the hill. And the second, and, and, and for that I would like to say that there, there were hundreds of, hundreds of hours dedicated to this by the human rights promoters that we had trained, I mean more than 700 of them. And, um, and there's like uh, Irma, Betty, uh, Miriam, Margarita, and all of these uh, mostly, mostly women that actually engage with, uh, with this process. But I wanted to finish with, the, with this thought about, about what, what do, we, do we expect in the future. We, do, we, we, had a we had a broken system, a health, uh, healthcare broken system before the pandemic, and we still have it right now. But for a minute, for a moment in history, this, there was a glimpse of something better that happened during the pandemic. Yes. That communities working with institutions guaranteed that everybody had access to vaccination. Everybody, regardless of immigration status, um, color of the skin, nationality, gender, whatever, everybody had access to vaccinations. And, and testing. So I think we have the formula how to do this, how to fix the system, and the sky is not going to fall, and it's going to be better. Thank you, Fernando. One sentence, one thing that really stuck in my mind that you said when we talked prior was that just for a moment we served everybody. And that is the strength of this work that has been achieved, right? And and the worry about how are we going to continue? So, Abigail, how how do we get there? Yeah, um, it is a uh, moral and ethical imperative for the treaty and trust responsibility for American Indians and Alaska Natives be upheld by the federal government. And until that is done, we will continue to see these ongoing chronic health disparities. And so we need all allies and all folks to be working with us in doing that. In addition, one of the things that we have continuously seen as we've moved forward in attempting to reach health equity is evidence-based practices that don't have our evidence. And so we need to change Western science to both recognize indigenous science, to value and to push forward the voices of communities and community-based participatory research in culturally rigorous ways, to uh, fund appropriately community-based organizations like my own and the other tribal epidemiology centers who are doing this work nationwide. But yet, I have sat in rooms where they would question my team and I's credibility and our credentials on whether or not we could do the science right. And my answer to them is we've not only been doing it right for thousands of years, we were doing it better. And so that's what we need to get back to. Wow. The audience was like, they were ready. They were fired up and ready to go. It was so exciting. If we could have bottled that energy, that sense of, of uh, taking the impossible and making it possible, it was all happening right there in that room. And this is just the first panel. This is just the first panel. And after uh, you've now you know, heard a little bit of the flavor from all of the speakers, and then came the Q&A. You never know what's going to happen when you open up to the audience and say, okay, we'll take your questions now. 
Well, somebody threw a fastball. Let's go to the tape. So my question is for Dr. Thomas. Hello. Uh, so I'm curious. I know we're, we're doing things in the barber shop, but I was just curious about maybe expanding to the beauty shop because we stay there for a lot longer. <laughs> and we're a captive audience. And so I'm just curious if, uh, if that is something that you are thinking about expanding to. Um, as a woman of color, I can tell you I've spent many a time in the beauty shop. And by the time I was done, I've been fed, I've been prayed to, and all other things. So why not get my vaccinations there? Maybe that's something you can lead, Christina. <laughs> well, let's hear from Steve. Yeah, she's absolutely right. And, and uh, I would be remiss. Uh, the whole network of health advocates in region research are barbers and stylists. Uh, we have barbershops and salons, and I would, I'm, I'm getting messages on my watch. Uh, Katrina Randolph from Trey Shea's Hair Studio says, say hello to the Surgeon General. <laughs> they were on Zoom together. So there's the other piece, that bringing these, these humble leaders of the barbers and stylists into a Zoom with the Surgeon General of the United States, with Anthony Fauci, with Dr. Michael Osterholm, that made a difference. You know why? Those people, those leaders, treated the barbers and stylists with dignity and respect and recognized their skills. So as Abigail has mentioned, uh, ours are being trained as certified community health workers, but they're treated like volunteers. They're not being reimbursed as community health workers. Maybe that's something we can fix. And, uh, and they're putting their own resources on the table to make these events more than just a clinic, to make them that family reunion. That should be something that is also supported. And when you walk into our shops, you should be able to get an N95 mask. You should be able to get a rapid test. And right now we're running out of resources uh, for that. And the, the dentist has stepped up. And so now we have oral health supplies being delivered, just like you're delivering diapers. We have coats for the homeless people who came from under the bridge to get something to eat and to get a vaccination. When they showed up with no shoes or holes in their shoes, we brought coats and shoes. That's what you have to do. It cannot just be a biomedical intervention. It has to be addressing the community and the context in which they're living. I think I heard the word CMS code somewhere in there about getting the healthcare workers paid. Huh? There is a code. I, I do want to double tap on this because one thing we've talked about so much um, over the past two years is how we've expanded the public health workforce into civic society at large, right? And the innovation that you've brought forward is really, okay, so now we have a system. We get our barbers certified. That's right. That's fantastic. So. No promises, obviously, but you know we got to find ways to then adequately compensate people for that work, and we need to broaden it into beauty shops and and other places. You know, I had to laugh. I'm telling you, I did not plant that person, but she also wanted to tell the story of the salon, so you could tell she was she wanted to tell us a, a, a bigger story, and uh, you saw uh, Dr. Friedhoff say, hey, maybe you can do that. So in that audience, you had also leaders, not just the people on the panel, you had leaders in the audience as well. And all this is being documented. And that's what made it so exciting for me to realize that all this is being documented. But now we have to get that message out to the community who wasn't in that room, who doesn't look, you know, may not be watching C-SPAN. 
And that's why we're here on the cutting edge to bring you all things health and wellness, COVID and beyond. Well, we're coming up on the end of the summit. And um, let me um, tell you that I had to be true to the reality that I experienced working with our barbers and stylists over the past 20 plus years and very intensely during the pandemic. I'm so proud of them. And we should be proud of our community's assets. Yeah, we got a lot of issues that have us living sicker and dying younger. But you know what? We're still here. (laughs) We're still here. And we need to listen to our ancestors as well, from Martin Luther King to Frederick Douglass. And that means, I'm going to take a a text from Frederick Douglass, agitate, agitate, agitate. That's what we have to do. Let's not get tired when it comes to COVID. We're now basically being told, you're going to have to save yourself. And we're going to make sure that you have the information you need for you, your family, and your loved ones. And especially for our brothers and sisters at what I call the hell no wall. You know anybody at the hell no wall? Hell no, I ain't taking no COVID vaccine. Hell no, I ain't taking no flu vaccine. Hell no, I ain't even going to the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, we all know somebody like that. How do we reach them? I think we reach them with dignity and respect. Let me take you to the last clip. Roll tape. And just a real quick tip. We, we listened. Uh, we brought in our School of Journalism. Uh, they trained the barbers and stylists in how to use their phones to do man and woman in the chair interviews. And we just heard their mess. We just heard what they were consuming. We, we didn't try to correct. We used the videos. And then we would use them on YouTube with the Fauci's and the Osterholms and said, now answer their questions in a way they... And when they saw that, We were at the hell no wall. Even our barbers and stylists were saying hell no. But over time, they learn and they change. And when they change, their clients changed. There's a trustworthiness. So their credibility is on the line as well. We should not destroy that. Just one additional thing for the Native community specifically, as it is a sovereign right for the tribal nations to decide what their regulations were. For example, on masking, uh, I was working with communities where in the state, you know, vaccinations first came, you had to be 65, but they said, no, 50. Our people don't live to 65. And so um, they had a legal right to decide who they were going to vaccinate. And the mis interpretations and the misunderstandings and the pushback came from the state and county health departments who did not understand the tribal sovereign right to make those decisions. So we need to continue to educate on the sovereign rights of tribal nations to make the decisions for their people, and that is their decision as a sovereign government. Thank you, Abigail. Um, Uncertainty in crisis, right, is about engagement, and that is the key tenant here. You cannot have the facts or the right answers at any moment in time. It's about that continued relationship and, of course, of understanding the community and and respecting um, where the community is at. Um, We're off to a fantastic start with our first panel today. Um, If I froze here briefly, it is because I'm in awe with all of what you do. I've had the privilege of preparing, helping Cameron with preparing this event. I've talked and worked with a lot of you since I migrated to this country, really. 
Um, it's one thing to work at the White House, but it's a different thing to be in this room together with all of you. So thank you for the fantastic work that you do every day, and let's give an amazing round of applause. Wow. What a way to close out the White House Summit. Only the first panel. Trust. It all starts with trust. But you know what else? It also means we must be trustworthy. Okay? So when we hear our people uh, on the front lines and we hear them in the barbershops and salons and we hear them from the hell no wall, we got to take what we hear back to whatever table we have that can help alleviate their suffering. At the end of the day, that's what this is all about, alleviating suffering and recognizing that we have a window of opportunity here. The pandemic is a disruptor. It's a magnifying glass. It has exposed the broken parts of our healthcare delivery system. And we have a chance to make a difference right here in the great state of Maryland. That's what makes me so excited that what we do here in Maryland can be a model for the nation. And with that, I am just so excited to bring this segment of the Cutting Edge podcast to a close. And looking forward to our next journey together as we address all things health and wellness, COVID and beyond. And I want to encourage everybody out there to listen to the entire summit. That were, that was, I just gave you highlights from the first panel. There were two other panels uh, for the event, and they were also equally amazing. Uh, the power of partnership uh, from COVID-19 equity to health equity. And then the closing remarks from the U.S. Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. You got to listen to it all. And all you have to do is go online and Google UMD Hair. UMD Hair. And that'll take you to our website where you'll find everything you need to know for you and your family. Until we meet again, this is Dr. T signing off from The Cutting Edge. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you the next time on The Cutting Edge.